Ryan Hockensmith, we're going to again pry open your cabinet of sports curiosities. Tell us where we should begin today's story. This story begins in the old McNichols Sports Arena in Denver, Colorado, and the date was November 12th, 1993, so basically 30 years ago exactly. There were thousands of people in the arena that night, and one of them was a guy named Art Jimerson. Art Jimerson was a, a boxer. He fought in a bunch of different weights, but he weighed about 175, 180 pounds normally. And on that night, he was there to participate in the first ever Ultimate Fighting Championship. You talk about an original event. If you want to know reasons, if you want to know why it's such an original event, look no further than this ring. It's not a ring at all. It's an octagon. Eight sides. Got a fence here. The boxers are talking about it could be a little bit of a slow service. This is what I'm talking about. It's got a little bit of give. It's going to be fun. Jimerson, he was positive that he was going to win his first UFC fight. He was fighting a guy he outweighed by a good 20 pounds, and he thought it was pretty funny when he looked at the guy and saw this dude was a jujitsu black belt, um, and he was wearing what what Art said was it looked like a bathrobe. And he just remembers, he, he says to this day, he just remembers thinking, that, this is easy money. But as he warmed up backstage, he ran into a guy from the uh, from this jujitsu guy's camp, and Jimerson said to him, hey, you're with my opponent, right? And the guy nodded his head, and Jimerson stepped back, and he... He said, like, what's your, what's your guy going to do with this? And he started pap, 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 throwing out uh, a bunch of punches really quickly. And um, he, he said to this dude, how's, how's your guy going to get past that? And the guy on the other side of him smiled and he, and he said, hey, listen, Art, why don't you try to hit me with a jab? And so Jimerson, he locked in and he started, he got in his stance and he started to throw a jab. And this dude surges forward, gets into his body and knocks Jimerson down without pretty much any effort, and he gets on top of him for a second before he lets him up. Jimerson's recollection of the whole moment, it's not crystal clear, but in reporting, someone else characterized it as Jimerson's statement at that moment was, oh my God, he is going to break my arms and legs, isn't he? Earlier this month, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, more commonly known as UFC, celebrated its 30th anniversary. The company's explosive growth is unprecedented in the history of sports, recently earning a $12 billion valuation. But the UFC didn't just create a new kind of sports entertainment. It brought a relatively unknown fighting style out of the underground and into the mainstream, upending our understanding of human combat. So today, Ryan Hockensmith tells the tale of the first ever UFC event through the eyes of one fighter who had no idea what he was getting into. I'm Clinton Yates. It's Tuesday, November 21st. This is ESPN Daily. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. 
Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Ryan, before we get further into Art Jimerson and UFC 1, can you tell us how you became interested in UFC 1 in the first place? I was writing about this self-defense guru from Detroit, Dale Brown, that's a pretty viral guy on social media. And during the course of that, I started talking to fighting experts, and a few casually mentioned a concept that it rattled my brain a little bit. It was this idea that the UFC fighters of today are not just the best fighters in the world. They are the toughest human beings to ever exist. To MMA people, that probably makes sense. But to me, I was like, wow, I never thought of it like that. And so I pressed these experts on that concept. And they all said that fist fighting is one of those things that is a a very primitive athletic endeavor. You know, we've been fighting and running and jumping forever, way before football and soccer and all of these other things. And so fist fighting has existed since the beginning of time. But We have learned more about hand-to-hand combat in the past 30 years than the millions of years before. So then, the 30th anniversary of the first UFC event is as good of a time as any to look at how this whole UFC slash mixed martial arts thing got going in the first place. And the guy you chose to focus on from that first UFC event was Art Jimerson, who you already introduced us to a bit ago. But... Give us a fuller picture of him at this point when he's ready to enter the octagon in 1993. He was a solid professional boxer. Uh, He'd won 15 straight fights. There was conversations about maybe he'd worked his way up in the rankings enough to to get a fight with Thomas Hearns. If he got into a fight with Thomas Hearns, that puts him right in title contention and puts him in the A-list category of, of boxers at the time. Came from St. Louis, which great boxing community. Um, he loves St. Louis. People still call him St. Louis. Mike Tyson calls him St. Louis. Um, so he's well known by a lot of boxers over the years. And he's uh, pretty open about talking about he survived some sexual abuse um, from a neighbor when he was a, when he was a kid. It's a little bit of a speech impediment because of that trauma. And he has mixed feelings because it was a terrible thing that happened to him. But he also doesn't know where he'd be without boxing. And that trauma led him to walk into a boxing gym for the first time. And he just, he talked about that first time he got in there and started working those heavy bags. He felt immediately this sense of confidence. And his quote to me was, I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't started boxing. I needed boxing. You know, a lot of young folks turn to boxing as a way out from things that they're trying to escape in their lives. But how does UFC end up on this guy's radar, you know, even involved to any of that whatsoever? It's interesting. When you go back in time to the early 90s, I mean, we if you're younger than us, um, you know, this is a something that's on been on your sports website and on Sports Center for for your whole life. But back then it was a bizarro event. Like people didn't even know if it was going to be able to be put on. Politicians, I mean, people were coming out of the woodwork to say this is disgusting, it shouldn't happen. John McCain infamously called it human cockfighting. And so this was like a total bizarro circus show. And 
UFC started with a very direct question as its organizing principle, which was, which combat discipline is the best? So the fighters, they weren't just competing for themselves. They were elected as torchbearers for their entire sport. You know, I say in my story that Jimerson was boxing senator at the first ever Bare Knuckle Congress. And so Jimerson was like a pretty good boxer. And, you know, none of the huge stars were going to give up $20 million paydays to go fight in a cage because they didn't even know what it was. So he was the right, like, high level, but not a superstar boxer for Art Davey, the guy who came up with the UFC. And so Davey and, uh, and, uh, and some of his workers, they recruited Art to be in the first UFC. Octagon was not a household name back then. So can you explain what the format was for the whole thing? I mean, I guess they had one guy from each discipline, but how exactly did this work in terms of what the breakdown was? Well, there were very few rules. Um, I mean, UFC still doesn't have very many rules, but so it was all of the different disciplines. And the most surprising thing in retrospect is that it was all in one night. It was an eight-man tournament. So the winner was going to have to win three fights and the pressure on each one of these people from the disciplines was pretty intense. You know, if you can think about a community that was important to you, whether it was your high school or your family, if you were picked to go down to the town square and represent that, that community. A volunteer is tribute. Yes. Send somebody else. Yeah, Don't send me. But um, and the thing is, like, you know, it all makes sense when you say it out loud. But it, the idea this sport didn't exist. So all of the different disciplines did exist, but they had never had, they had had some interdisciplinary fights where a karate guy fights a boxing guy, but we'd never had it all in one place, all at one time, all the different disciplines. Eight of the deadliest fighters in the world will meet in a no-holds-barred combat to determine who is the ultimate fighting champion. It's kind of like that no one had ever played a football game before, and then Super Bowl One was playing. Be forewarned, there are no rules, no judges' scores, and no time limits. These guys had to show up. No one knew what to expect. And we actually, when you talk to people about what the expectations were, even the fighting experts didn't know. Eight street-tough warriors wage combat in a battle where anything can happen and probably will. So I'm looking at a list of these eight fighters and their fighting styles. I see a sumo wrestler, two different kickboxing disciplines. I see Taekwondo and three other forms of martial arts, jujitsu included. And then there's Jimerson, the boxer. You know, the boxing, Jimerson was like a key get for them because at the time, if you grabbed 100 people off the street and said, of all the fighting skills, what would you pick? Most people would say boxing. You know, and they still might. But it actually, we learned pretty quick, a bunch of these disciplines that were used at UFC 1 and even the early years of the UFC, you didn't ever kind of ever see again. You know, there was a bunch of stuff, all those movie stars, you never, you have never seen anybody do anything Steven Seagal did. You don't see any crane <laughs> kicks. You don't see any of the Jean-Claude Van Damme stuff. That stuff's not real. It's not real in, in the MMA version of fighting. We are not going to besmirch the good name of Steven Seagal, not to forget his tremendous recording artist career as well. No, in all seriousness, though, Art Jimerson was a guy who was taking this seriously. This was his career. This is what he was doing. How did they figure out who he was going to fight as the boxer who was apparently a fulcrum of part of their card? Well, Jimerson said this to me, and then I poked around and asked other people because I thought maybe he was being a conspiracy theorist, but... He thought they put him against that small jujitsu guy in the bathrobe on purpose. 
They wanted the obvious number one seed, which was the boxing representative, to go in there and get squashed by the guy in the bathrobe. When you pull back the curtain on UFC 1, it was organized by a lot of people that had an inclination that jiu-jitsu was going to emerge. And that the Gracie family, that's the fighter he was fighting. A guy named Hoist Gracie, who is a legend, the first legend of UFC fighting. And they paired him up with it because they wanted to make a statement right from the beginning. It was almost like a team that thought they could beat Duke in the NCAA tournament being like, put us at 16, man. We want the 16 seed. We're going to go in here and shock the world. And... That's what the plan was that night. You know, Gracie's brother, Horion, was a key figure in helping Art Davies set up this whole event. And that was one of his asks. He said, put my nephew in against the boxer, Art Jimerson. And he had a true belief in his heart that Hoist was going to go in there and shock the world for the entire night, win all three fights. But he wanted to do the big one right away, which is take out the boxer. So Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you're saying, not well-known at the time, at least in the world writ large of the combat community, but well-known within, perhaps, as a bit of a growth suck. Yeah, but I mean, like, even Jimerson said that he was just like, even when somebody said that, well, the, the guy you're fighting is a jiu-jitsu guy. It's, you know, this form of wrestling where you can do submissions. And he was still like, oh, my God, this guy's not even going to get near me. I'm going to crush him, you know? And so... um, in this case, you know, the, the guy that I mentioned earlier who sparred with Jimerson in that, in, uh, in backstage getting ready where he took Jimerson down and Jimerson said, oh my God, this, this guy's going to tear me apart. That guy was John McCarthy, famous UFC referee, Big John. Everybody knows him. He might be, I mean, he's in the running for, of all the most famous legendary referees in any sport, McCarthy's probably on that Mount Rushmore. And he has a lot of background in fighting himself in, in various disciplines. And he had started working out with Gracie. And once he tangled with the Gracie family at all, he, he became a, a real believer in that form of jujitsu, being able to control much bigger people, being able to sort of snuff out striking. He came to believe. He weighed 310 pounds and he sparred with Hoist. Uh, the first time he was in the gym with the Gracies. And McCarthy was like, oh my God, I'm just going to like flick this guy and he's going to blow over. So he double leg takedown Gracie to his back, which is a dominant position. And he had him, but Gracie was calm, like too calm. It freaked him out, freaked McCarthy out a little bit because this is the spot where people started to get overwhelmed usually. And he heard Gracie, Gracie whisper, <laughs> whisper into his ear, you've seen Rocky, right? Nobody thought he could win either. And within 30 seconds, Gracie had McCarthy submitted from an arm bar and he just kept tapping him out as they, as they sparred. He couldn't believe it. He gave me a quote where he said, you know, if you go back to UFC one, nobody truly knew what they were getting into other than Hoist. He'd been doing this his whole life. Art Jemerson, everybody thought he was going to prevail as a boxer. That was what conventional wisdom took you to, but the jujitsu folks had some things that they were ready to deploy. Take me back to what the first matchup of this tournament was and how things looked in general overall for that night when things got going in the octagon. So in the arena and backstage, there was like, there was like such trepidation. No one knew what was going to happen out there. And it was as wild. Whatever people thought was going to happen, it was more wild. And so the first, the first fight of the night was between a sumo wrestler and then a French kickboxer. Please welcome the contestants for... The first match of tonight's ultimate fighting championship 
A sumo wrestler weighed about 450 pounds. And tipping the scales at an incredible 420 pounds. Combat fans, step back, make room for the giant, Tayli Tuli. The kickboxer was like 200, 225. The 1992 world champion, French savant boxer, Dutch karate champion for eight consecutive years, Gerard Gerdon. Sumo wrestler, I mean, you look at it and you're just like, oh, obviously, this guy's just gonna pick him up and throw him and throw him through the cage. And they go. At the bell, the sumo wrestler rushed the French fighter and I think there'll be a lot of stalking just to see what happens. Gerard Gardot was, was able to elude the sumo fighter. He stepped back and he unleashed his head kick. Kathy, what do you think? Well, Let's go. Whoa. I think we're just missing teeth there. Gerard just caught him with a real good roundhouse kick to the face. Yeah, I think it's possible he may have a cut under his eye. Yes. They might be calling in the cut, man. Now they'll take a look at it. I'm yeah, sure. call the cut, man. It sprayed out three of the sumo wrestler's teeth. It's one of the most infamous clips in, in UFC history. Man, that's a right leg roundhouse kick right that's to it. the face. That's where the tooth came out. And he still stands there. He's stunned slightly. And then I think Gerard also struck him with a good right hand hook. Two of the teeth got stuck in Gordo's foot. Um, and his foot was banged up. If you watch him in subsequent fights that night, his foot was, was mangled pretty good. He was really having a hard time of it. And so the first UFC fight was three lost teeth, and it took 26 seconds. Kathy, did you catch that tooth? I, no, I think it's under the table here. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to find it later, and I get a dollar for it. The match has been called. Gerard Jojo is the winner. And McCarthy remembers that backstage that night, everybody's, everybody's hitting heavy bags, everybody's training, barking, all of the noises you hear from people getting warmed up to, to go out and fight. And it was boisterous back there. And then when those teeth went flying, clearly visible on camera, this was not something that our ringside reporter had to tell. You saw the tooth. McCarthy says there was this eerie hush that went over all of the fighters backstage. And he, you know, his quote was, um, it was like a ghost town, dead silent. All those guys were just saying, holy crap, this is real. It was a new beginning on what we knew about fighting and what we were going to discover. What's Art Jimerson thinking at this point? Teeth flying everywhere, no noise being made. Yikes. So he he had like two wildly different emotions. He swung back and forth, back and forth. Because there, there's a bravado. He's a tough guy, man. He's been in a million fights in his life and he won most of them. So he was just like, I have the best skill set. I'll be fine. Then he saw the, the kick and it was like, oh man, this is different than I thought. Oh my goodness. And it did not help that his manager was out watching the first fight and he came running back and was just like sobbing. He was like, Art, you, you have to walk away. Just walk out the side door and go. Just get out of the arena. Because they were looking at the long game here and thinking like, do we want to jeopardize high level boxing fights for this? Whatever this is, you know? So Jimerson, he definitely felt a lot of pangs of regret, but he also is like, uh, I mean, he's a great, he's a great human being. And so he felt like this is a commitment. I made a commitment. I'm going to, 
I'm going to stick with it. He had played hardball when he realized he had some leverage as the boxer, you know, who agreed to do this like wild new thing. So he had, he had asked for a lot of money and gotten it. And he just felt like, I'm going to go in there. I'll be fine. I've been in a million fights. And so I cannot just sneak out the side door and disappear with my manager. Um, he did keep puffing up his, his chest and saying, he used the phrase real fighter over and over again. He just kept saying, I'm a real fighter. I'm a real fighter. I've been punched. I've punched a lot of people. I'm going to be fine. And as vicious as those fights were, he talked himself into believing that he was going to go out there and outclass people. He had already gotten $20,000 just to be there. And he thought, I'll win 50 grand just by outclassing people. There's a term in professional sports where people say you make a business decision, which typically means you get out of the way of harm as opposed to stepping into it. In this case, Jimerson made a business decision and stepped into the ring, but only with one glove. Please explain that strategy to me. Yeah, it's one of the most odd decisions in in uh, UFC history. You actually can't, I mean, you can't wear gloves. It's pretty strict these days, but back then it was a little looser. He was a right-handed guy. He had a good right hand, but his best punch was his jab with his left. So his thinking was, I'm going to wear a glove on my left hand and I'm going to throw it a lot. I'm going to use it a lot. I'm going to beat guys up with my left hand. And because of that, I'll wear a glove and protect it a little bit. And <laughs> and he, he really believed that his jab and his striking overall was so good that it wouldn't matter that he had a glove on and one bare hand. And so he thought, I'll pepper my opponent with jabs, and then I'm just going to I'm gonna hit him with one right hand and punch them out. I, I really think that he thought, I'm going to throw 50 jabs per fight and then one right hand, and then I'll, I'll sweep through. That was his, he really believed that in his heart. All right, Ryan. That brings us to the moment of truth, which is, of course, inside the octagon. What happened? So they, they introduced the fighters. Fighting out of the blue corner, Art, King Arthur Jimerson. Jimerson came out, one glove on, pre-fight, he's like stalking around, and Gracie's on the other side. Please welcome, out of the red corner, Hoist Gracie! The arena was packed with Gracie's. You know, it's weird to think of MMA as having like a home field advantage, but this was a home field advantage. There were a lot of Gracie's in there. Hoist Gracie's going to wear his judo top. Actually, Bill, it will work in his favor. It'll be easier to grapple with the guy to actually get more friction on an arm. Yes, good. And if the man grabs him, watch Hoist, so I think you're going to see. The clinch is extremely important in jiu-jitsu. When the fight started, Jimerson moved forward uh, and Gracie didn't move too much. So, so Jimerson was able to kind of walk him down. Low uh, sidekick here to get his opponent to lower his guard. About 20 seconds into the fight, in a moment that Jimerson still thinks back on, Gracie lifted up his leg and he directed this front kick toward Jimerson's legs, like directly at his knee. You're going to see an excellent there, just like that. A couple of those, Bill, I tell you what, that's uh, it's much like a Muay Thai kick. But it's the like kicks from Gracie didn't really land, but that was the moment Jimerson was just like, I just don't have any training in this. And it opened his mind to all the different kinds of violence that were available in this new sport. He didn't know how to avoid kicks or check them or catch them with his hands, nothing. He didn't know what to do. Watch Hoist. Hoist now commands his opponent. He's getting him to move back a little bit and uh, on, on command. And... You're going to see a clinch here. Gracie had sort of seized the momentum of dictating how this fight was going to go. And then he started pushing Jimerson back a little. And then at around the one-minute mark, Gracie shot this, this blast double-leg takedown, put Jimerson right on his back. Art is a little bit worried here. There it is. There's Art. 
Now we're watching Hoist take the mount position. And that's exactly where the jiu-jitsu man wants to be. He's on top. This is not a good place He was completely on top of Jimerson. Jimerson fought like crazy, but he just could not, um, he just couldn't move. And so for, for about 60 seconds, he just smushed his weight down on Jimerson and landed a couple of punches, but basically zero punches. He just had Jimerson completely suffocated on the, on the, on the cage floor. And the damage didn't happen to Jimerson's face. It happened to his soul. You know, it happened in his heart. He'd never been stuck like that. Never been able to not move. That glove is really working in uh, Art's, uh, against Art because he can't grab. He can't grab, grab he can't grab pull him in tight. You bet. If I were him, uh, perhaps he might think about taking that thing off right now. So after 55 seconds, they were just wiggling around, trying to get out and not taking much damage. He just he tapped out. He just bowed out. He just tapped out. He just tapped out. Did he? Oh, the towel just got thrown in as well. That's amazing. It doesn't take much. It is just a frightening experience, Bill, to have somebody up on top of you. Yeah, to be able to push out there quickly. You bet. Our Jimerson had just become the first person to ever tap out in a UFC fight. Ego is bruised as any other part of his body. What do you think Jimerson is thinking in that moment after becoming the first person to submit? He paces around. It's really uncomfortable because he wasn't tired. He wasn't, I mean, it just, he just felt like he'd been run over by a truck. I think at that point, it started to sunk in like, man, I'm never gonna, like, this is a big deal. Like, this is, my life's not gonna be the same because of this. And the ref raised Gracie's hand. Jimerson went back to his corner and put his hands on his hips. And, you know, that look of him, both of his hands are on his hips, but one has a glove on and one doesn't. It's kind of an unforgettable image. And he just kept walking around the cage, walking around the cage. And you could you could just feel, you know, it makes you cringe a little bit because you can you can tell he's embarrassed. You know, he kept telling himself, I, at least I live to fight another day. And um, what he didn't realize is that the the not just that he lost, but the way that he lost, it was going to haunt him for the rest of his life. Coming up, it's the first day of the rest of everybody's lives after the first UFC. Picture this. You arrive at your hotel. You have an important online meeting lined up with clients from all across the country. You have your laptop open, ready to begin, and the Wi-Fi is so terrible you can't even connect. These type of stressful situations happen all the time, but they don't have to. When you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you have access to their free high-speed Wi-Fi. So you can take care of those critical emails, join your meetings on time, and even unwind by streaming your favorite shows without having to worry. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. 
Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Ryan, just as you stated, and as the Gracie Camp thought, Royce did go on to win UFC 1, turn him into the first UFC superstar, if you will. Also won UFC 2 and UFC 4, which solidified jiu-jitsu's influence on the sport. But as for Art Jimerson, where did his career go from there? It didn't go anywhere great, I'll tell you that much. The Hearns fight never came together, and... You know, he just started to slide and he got, uh, you know, he lost a bunch of fights after that and he didn't get booked for big fights either. So he wasn't even making great money. And he thinks when he looks back that he, people couldn't get over the idea that he'd lost to Gracie and and neither could he. You know, he had been the representative, you know, elected from boxing to go and stand up for his discipline. And he he landed zero punches and um, and tapped out, you know, and he's he was offered a spot at UFC 2. You know, they said, come back, redeem yourself, you know? And um, he just was so embarrassed by it. He just was like, I just want to completely shut the door on that whole thing. And so even when he got invited to UFC events to just watch, he declined. Um, when people would try to give him credit for like at least being there and being a part of this birth of a new sport, you know, he pushed it away. He just didn't want it. He wanted to hide. He just wished he could run from it. He couldn't handle the stigma. Eventually retired from boxing in 2002. Uh, I finished 33 and 18 as a boxer and, you know, in his personal life, he got married and divorced twice, had some kids, got a job at Pepsi and um, he did some boxing training on the side. So he never got too far away from the gym. But for the most part, he thought boxing was over. Being down and out or being down bad, as the kids say on the Internet, is one thing. Embarrassed. And if UFC spoils your boxing reputation, there's kind of no real way to go from there. But what did that say about the emerging culture of UFC itself? How is he looked at by those fans, considering boxing was still very much a big discipline, but he's just one guy who lost a match? Well, from, from day one, people who love the UFC love it. Like, there's a passion. You know, there aren't as many MMA fans and UFC fans as there are NFL fans, but the people who do love the UFC love it. And so... He was embarrassed by this, but for fans, he was one of the, the godfathers. You know, he's one of the first people to climb in there. And there was respect for that idea of these eight people who had no idea what they were getting into. But like, because he wore the one glove, I mean, he even said this to me, even, even though it's like, a, it was an embarrassing thing, he was memorable, you know, and you want to be memorable. And people remembered that one glove. And so it was like, sort of, he became kind of a popular figure in UFC lore, a lot of it was because of the one glove, a two glove boxer who tapped out like that, probably not as uh, not as memorable. And he just started to realize over the years that, you know, what they did was unique at UFC one. These people that climbed in there for the first time. What was the point where Jimerson realized fan interest and fascination had actually caught up with him because of his courage and not because of anything he failed to do? Yeah, it's a good question. And it, it it took 10 years. It was a full decade of just like, I'm going to pretend that this never happened. And he was in St. Louis in 2003. He remembers it very vividly. He was there working a, uh, at a local gym, doing some boxing training. And an old friend of his, Evander Holyfield, you may have heard of him. Uh, he showed up <laughs> and, um, you know, Jimerson was well known among boxers, you know, and um, and after this training session, Jimerson went out to dinner with Holyfield and they were sitting there and these two kids approached the table And both of them thought they knew what was about to happen. And then something completely different happened. One of the kids said, hey, 
are you Art One Glove Jimerson? And Jimerson said, I just stopped eating and said, excuse me? You know, he thought for sure they were there. I mean, it's Vander Holyfield. And the kid, he made the kid say it again. He said, I'm sorry to disturb your, your dinner, Mr. Jimerson. Um, Mr. Holyfield, could we get a picture with Art? And Holyfield thought this was so funny. And Jimerson had this moment where he, it was an epiphany, you know, he was taken aback. And he posed for the photo with these kids. And it really dawned on him that if everybody else is going to accept him as Art One Glove Jimerson, why not accept himself that way too? Like, what if he took that low moment that he'd been trying to run for from for a decade? What if he leaned into it? What if he just owned it? And so he made a vow that day, like, I'm not going to shy away from my my UFC career anymore. I'm not only going to accept this one glove nickname, but I'm going to try to own it. I'm going to try to laugh about it. And I, in my story, I said that that was the day Art Jimerson's infamy tapped out. What does that look like for his present, being Art One Glove Jimerson in terms of accepting his role in UFC's history and part of the lore, as you mentioned? Well, he embraced it. He embraced the One Glove thing. He embraced the idea of being at that first fight. Like, he signs autographs that way. He signs autographs as Art One Glove Jimerson. He did a bobblehead of himself with, sold out, by the way, also, wearing just one glove. And he, <laughs> yes. He pops his trunk of his car. There's just freaking gloves. I mean, as far as the eye can see, he hands out gloves. One, you get one, you know, you get one because he's one glove, Jimerson. And so after years of avoiding the the UFC events, not even wanting to show up, he started popping in, you know, he takes pictures with people and he kind of like revels in, in what used to be a stigma. And, you know, I said in my story, if you revel in a stigma, I mean, is it really even a stigma anymore? You know, and so... He has tons of photos of him at UFC events talking to UFC fighters because he's really become kind of a fixture. But everybody has to want to know, where is the glove? Not just what they got from him of a glove. It's the number one question that people ask. Where would you do with it? Where'd you, where'd it go? And He's pretty coy about it. He always just like smiles and says, you know, this has been quite a journey and, you know, uh, the glove means a lot to me and he considers it a treasured item. And there was like some chatter. You see it pop up sometimes on, uh, you know, MMA podcasts and stuff about like, I wonder what that glove could fetch on the open market. And, you know, the estimate, he says he's been offered $60,000 for it. You know, I don't know. That seems high, but like, even if you get 10 grand for it, you know, that's pretty, it's not bad. And uh, he was telling me about all of this at breakfast in this really nice restaurant. And um, he told me, you know, I always tell people I, I could never give up something like that. I would never sell it. That's an artifact that I want to be with me for the rest of my life. It, and it's a sign of him taking a humiliating moment and turning it into like a, a lesson in humility. And so he says, I, I could never sell that. But as he was eating pancakes, he paused and he looked around like he was about to tell me like a CIA... <laughs> hidden information or something and he like looked around and then put his hand beside his mouth like he was gonna like shield the rest of the world from from hearing what he was about to say and he leaned into me and he says everybody asks about the glove but i have no idea where it is thank you ryan thank you so much clinton 
If you're interested in learning more on the very wild story behind UFC 1, including where the whole idea came from in the first place, I highly recommend an episode of 30 for 30 podcasts titled No Rules, The Birth of UFC. We've included a link in today's episode description. I'm Clinton Yates. This has been ESPN Daily. Talk to you tomorrow.